If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Today, as we are continuing our series in the gospel of Mark, we come to a new section of his gospel. So I thought it would be helpful for us to step back for just a moment and get this 30,000 foot view of where we've been so far. Maybe you're brand new here today, and uh, this is the first time you've been to a study in the Gospel of Mark, and it would be helpful for you to know this context and this turning point. One of my favorite commentaries is the um, commentary by R.T. France, and he offers this kind of outline to the book of Mark. He says, basically, there are three acts. Act one takes place in chapter one all the way through chapter eight and verse 21. This is primarily focused geographically in the region of Galilee. It's not only there, but primarily there. And there are various portraits of Jesus, and the movement in Mark's gospel is fast-paced. You might remember from our very first message on this gospel that we talked about how Mark likes to use the word immediately. It's like the scene changes from scene to scene. And Mark, as the the writer of this gospel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he pulls in these various stories and accounts of Jesus's life and early ministry around Galilee, healings and various exorcisms and teachings, and puts them together in this first section of Mark, eight chapters. Then, recently, we've been studying what R.T. France calls Act 2. And Act 2 is on the way to Jerusalem. There's a lot of language about journey, that um, there's a journey going toward Jerusalem. As they were going, on the way, he taught them this. And it's framed from 822 to the end of chapter 10, where we were last week, by the account of two healings. The healings of a blind man in Bethsaida, in chapter 8 and 22 and following, and where we were most recently in Jericho, blind Bartimaeus. It it kind of uh, bookends that section of this gospel. And along the way, Jesus predicts his passion three times. If you've been here for each of these uh, messages, you probably are remembering a few of these things. I'm just giving you this overview where Jesus predicts his own death his um, being betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles, and his resurrection. Now, this prediction of his passion is always followed by the failure of one of his disciples, which is another theme in Act 2, the incomprehension of the disciples. They are the opposite of the blind men. The blind men get it. They see Jesus for who he is, and the disciples are not quite getting it. They're like the blind man healed at Bethsaida who sees like trees moving about. You remember the partial healing? It's like, what is that about? Jesus is all powerful and he can only get the guy seeing trees. It was a picture of the, the sort of sight that the disciples had. They knew about Jesus and they had a clue, but they didn't see clearly yet. And so this is all taking place on the way to Jerusalem. One of the, the verses that we studied in this section in Mark chapter 10 and verse 32 was they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. You see Jesus purposefully going ahead of them to Jerusalem? And the disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. And Jesus takes the twelve aside, and he teaches them about the cost of discipleship. At each point when the disciples failed to grasp who Christ is and the the values of the kingdom of God, Jesus took those opportunities to teach them and grow them in their understanding of what it means to be his 
follower. But notice in that verse, Jesus is purposefully going toward Jerusalem, and the, the crowd that's following is afraid. That's because so far in Mark's gospel, there's been very, very little mention of Jerusalem. But we know from other gospels that Jesus did, in fact, go and do ministry in Jerusalem. But Mark has chosen, in his editorial fashion, to make his gospel a crescendo. Everything is moving toward Jerusalem. And whenever Jesus spoke of Jerusalem, it was that the chief priests and the elders and the scribes would betray him. They would hand the Son of Man over, and there was this element of fear. So everything is working to this point where you're in Jericho. If you were here last week and you've got the healing of blind Bartimaeus and you're down at the the bottom and you're looking up to Jerusalem and Jesus is marching ahead toward this city that is to be feared. So as act three begins, this pilgrim group is making their way toward Jerusalem and Jesus's more private teachings are going to give way to public confrontation. The miracles that have been so central to his popularity and his appeal in the north are going to practically disappear from Mark's gospel. There's not a lot mentioned of Jesus' healing from here on. And the focus shifts entirely to a record of our Lord's final week on earth. Six chapters are going to be devoted to seven days' worth of time called the Passion Week. That's why some people have referred to Mark's gospel as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Six chapters are going to be spent on the one week where Jesus will enter Jerusalem, confront the the prevailing authorities, be crucified, died, buried, and risen again. Six chapters, and all of that is what we're about to get to. So to give some perspective here, if you've been with us for all of the messages on Mark's gospel so far, we have spent 36 Lord's Days studying this gospel. And we've covered Acts 1 and Acts 2. And as we've done so, uh, we've been in Galilee and we've been on the way to Jerusalem. But compare that to where we will go from here. This year, we will spend another 13 Sundays And next year, we will spend 12 more. So 25 and 36, almost the same. There's a good deal of study left to be done. And all of it is going to be about the chronology of seven days of Jesus's life. Mark slows us down because this is important. It's important for us to understand what is taking place in Jerusalem And so as we are slowing down and as we are studying the passion of Christ, the most important week of the most important person who ever lived, I want to encourage you to get this book as a companion, okay? If I'm going to be preaching for two more, you know, this rest of this year and into next Easter in Mark's gospel, you have time to read one book that's 200 pages long and lots of blank pages along the way, okay? This is the book called The Final Days of Jesus, and it is all about this last week of Jesus's life. I've read this book personally, and I highly recommend it. In fact, Pastor Allen is going to be helping lead a study of this book on Wednesday nights for our Wednesday night Bible study starting on March 2nd. This is a great way for you to understand more um, historically, theologically, and devotionally 
Did you catch all those? All of those are in this book in a great way for you to study about the final week of Jesus's life. It is important, and Mark's gospel makes it plain that this is the focus, what is going to take place in Jerusalem. All right, so hopefully the stage is set. You're ready to kind of walk in with us, kind of in your mind's eye, into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. This is where we are as we study Mark's gospel. So let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They answered them, Just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven! He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. There is a meme that is taking the internets by storm. All the socials are abuzz with this meme. I know some of you government folks can't have TikTok. And uh, if you're older, you can't really do TikTok either. It's kind of ill-advised. You might pull something trying to do the latest viral video. But for those of you who are young enough to have social media or are engaged, you've probably seen the meme tell me you are this without telling me you are this, right? You know, tell me you're a dog lover without telling me you're a dog lover. It's how the challenge goes. And so if you're a dog lover, you might post a picture like this one here that says, this is how I slept last night. Okay, so you're not saying I'm a dog lover, but you know, if you have a dog, you know this is about how it goes if they stay in the bed with you. Or you might more cryptically say something like, I just vacuumed and I had to empty the canister two to four times before I finished even the living room, right? This is something all dog people know is that they shed everywhere and you have to clean up after them. Or perhaps you might say, I know when my Amazon packages are at the door before the doorbell even rings because you have a dog and you understand what it's like. Uh, Let me put it on another meme. Let's say it's, uh, tell me you're a mom without telling me you're a mom. Okay, and so these are actual answers that I found on the internet. Somebody, Somebody said, I just excitedly texted my husband about our daughter's poop being normal. 
That's a mom thing, right? The, the baby had been sick for a couple weeks and you're like, yes, it's normal, you know, okay? Moms get it. Or maybe a mom said, my Spotify playlist is just Baby Shark on repeat all the time. And I've heard some of you in our church literally say the exact same thing, some of the moms. Or this was my personal favorite. My lunch today wasn't a whole sandwich, but rather the edges of two sandwiches with dinosaurs missing from the middles. <laughs> that is a devoted mom to give their child the little dinosaur cut out peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So all this got me inspired. I did my own tell me without telling me challenge. I did a little research and this is truly from my heart. So here is my effort at tell me you're from Southern Maryland without telling me you're from Southern Maryland. And let me be clear, I do mean these endearingly because although I'm not from Southern Maryland, actually, as I understand it, you can't be from Southern Maryland unless you were born in Southern Maryland, which is just not a fair thing, right? Like some of us want to fit in here. All of these apply to me except for one, but I can't be from Southern Maryland because I wasn't born in the county or whatever. But anyway, (laughs) here it goes. All right. So this is my first one. Uh, I'm, I'm having stuffed ham for Christmas, right? You know that I'm from Southern Maryland without me telling you I'm from Southern Maryland, right? Okay, number next, people say, I hate it when I have to wash the pollen off my car. Okay, have you ever heard somebody say that that's from Southern Maryland? You know when they say wash that they're from around here. Uh, you might post this on your internet. You could say the county fair is already on my calendar because I know it's the third weekend after Labor Day. Like, duh, you know, everybody knows when the county fair is going to be in Southern Maryland. Or you could say, uh, you know, post a picture. Just look what I'm having for dinner. That says enough. I'm from Southern Maryland right there. Okay. And then lastly, I put Old Bay on everything. And that is true. My wings, my fries, my chips, my eggs, the list goes on. And as I said, four out of the five are true for me. And I had a lot of fun putting those together. If you have your own, you know, tell me you're from Southern Maryland without telling me, I would love to uh, hear that when you leave. Just give me your best, uh, best effort at that, okay? But all the fun that we're having this morning has a purpose. And that's, I wanted you to understand where I was coming from with the title and the outline. It's a little different, a little unique, but If Jesus were alive in 2022, and he was making his triumphal entry, uh, how could he say, I'm the Messiah, without wearing his I'm the Messiah t-shirt or, you know, button that says, I am the Messiah on it? What was he doing? Here's the thesis. Here's the main point of the message. In this passage, often called the triumphal entry, Jesus is using intentional deliberate actions to fulfill what was written about him in scripture. Jesus is doing these intentional, deliberate things to fulfill what was written about him in scripture. And all of those actions were designed directly to face the conflict that awaited him, or even maybe better, to light a match to the powder keg that was already waiting for him. In Jerusalem, as the festival of Passover was taking place, and thousands and thousands of people were thronging to Jerusalem, and there's this air of unrest, there's this um, 
uh, talk of a, a healing um, messianic figure, somebody who even raised the dead like a Lazarus is alive kind of situation, and there's this buzz, and Jesus walks headlong into it and does these things intentionally to show who he is. So, what was Jesus' first social media post? If he was going to post it, he might say something like this. I'll be making my grand entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay? That's his way of saying, I'm the Messiah, without saying he's the Messiah. Now, Bethany was just the home to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, was just about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And the throng of pilgrims that were making their way into Jerusalem for the festival would have typically done so on foot. So if Jesus wanted to be inconspicuous and not stand out, he could have certainly walked to Jerusalem. But instead, he chose to make his grand entrance on a donkey. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that you can never go unnoticed when you're riding a donkey, okay? That's just true of all time. But this is what he tells his disciples in chapter 11, verse 2. Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Of course, they find it exactly as Jesus says, which could have been another one of Jesus's posts, right? Like, you know, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen when you go into the city and everything I predict is going to be exactly as I I say it will be. I'm sovereign over the details. I, I know what's going to happen. I'm in control of this day. But why a donkey? You see, the use of a donkey was a significant messianic marker, and good Jewish people knew it. Matthew and Luke actually make the connection a little bit more plainly in their Gospels. As R.C. Sproul points out, deeply rooted in the Jewish consciousness of the Old Testament was the hope of the king who would enter Jerusalem as their coming Messiah riding on a donkey. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Let's do a little Old Testament survey here and find why this action was so significant. In Genesis 49, uh, Jacob is pronouncing a blessing over his sons. You'll remember his oldest, Reuben, was not given a blessing because of his misdeeds in his father's bed. And then there was uh, Simeon and Levi who had been very violent in life. And so, so Jacob comes to Judah Uh, And he gives him this blessing in chapter 49, beginning in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter, here's the the kingship, do you see it? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He ties, here it is, he ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. A lion from the tribe of Judah, will be king over the nations, and he will tie his donkey up and wash his robes in bloodish, grape-colored wine. 
But then hundreds of years later, not just in Genesis, hundreds of years later, you see someone from the tribe of Judah ride a donkey at his coronation. He was the literal son of David. King Solomon did this very same thing. Did you know it? In 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 32, we read, King David then said, call in the priest Zadok, the prophet Nathan, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, for me. So they came into the king's presence, and the king said to them, take my servants with you and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There, the priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan are to anoint him as king over Israel. You are to blow the ram's horn and say, long live King Solomon. You are to come up after him and he is to come in and sit on my throne. He is the one who is to become king in my place. He is the one I have commanded to be ruler over Israel and Judah. So King Solomon rides on a donkey and gets crowned king. But that's not all. But wait, there's more, okay? Because over 400 years after that, after the failure of Davidic kings and the exile of Judah, during the years of the prophet Zechariah, he would prophesy that a future king would make that same sort of entrance into Jerusalem. Look at Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So in other words, this donkey ride was not insignificant. It was a huge sign that Jesus saw himself as that promised king coming into his kingdom in Jerusalem. Dr. Aiken, in one of his commentaries, he's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, he points out that our Lord lived his life from beginning to end in total submission to the word of God. His life, his death, his triumphal entry on a donkey, his resurrection, they were all the unfolding drama of redemption. No wonder Jesus would say in John chapter 5, You pour over the scriptures because you think they have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. Jesus knew all that was prophesied about him in the passages in Genesis, in 1 Kings, and in Zechariah. He was fulfilling them, and he was proving his identity by riding a donkey. But not only was he doing that, he was the first rider of this donkey, the first maiden voyage on this donkey. And Jesus might have answered the tell me without telling me challenge by saying, the donkey I'll ride has never been ridden before. Not only is Jesus going to fulfill the prophecy of scripture to the letter, he was not going to settle for any ordinary donkey. You see, in biblical culture and in ancient cultures in general, an animal that is devoted to a sacred task 
must be one that has not been put into ordinary use. An animal devoted to a sacred thing must not be an animal that's been put into ordinary use. So let me give you two examples. One example would be the context of sacrificial worship. In Numbers chapter 19 and verse 2, we're told that uh, a heifer that is used for the rite of purification has to be perfect, without defect, and unused. That is, it couldn't be a draft animal that had been used with a yoke around its neck. You see, people were prone in the time of animal sacrifice. They would have wanted to say, okay, well, if, if God wants a cow, I'll give him a cow. And they'd go and find the worst in their herd. Like that would be the normal and natural thing for us in our own kind of self-centeredness to do. But God demands the best. Instead of calling your herd, you are to offer him the kind of animal that you would use to actually improve the quality of your herd. God demanded the best, an unused heifer. And the Philistines is a second example. You remember when the ark was being captured and all the problems were coming to the Philistines? Even the Philistine priests knew that you couldn't send the ark back to the Israelites on any old cow. Okay, what happens is they say in 1 Samuel 6 verse 7, prepare one new cart, a brand new cart, and two milk cows that have never been yoked and hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. So they're trying to see, okay, are the cows going to go this way or that way because their, their calves are over here. But these cows had never been used before. And they were going to carry the Ark of the Covenant of Israel. So it seems only right then that if the Ark of the Covenant would be carried by unyoked oxen, that the true and greater Ark of the Covenant, the Holy One of Israel, would ride on an animal that had never been ridden before. And just as an aside, that is not an easy thing to do. Uh, Have you ever ridden a donkey that has not been broken in before? Anybody? I don't suggest it, okay? It's not the very first thing you want to try and go jump out and do. But this, this donkey ain't no wonky shonky donkey. <laughs> this is the Lord of the Universe's donkey. I had to throw that one in there for the parents of toddlers out there. <clears throat> this donkey knew its rider. And Jesus was able to ride it into Jerusalem. Okay, so we've seen this not-so-subtle fulfillment of prophecy with an unridden donkey. What else was Jesus doing to imply his Messiahship? Well, what about what he was not doing? The third way that Jesus could have answered his tell-me-without-telling-me challenge would be to repost videos. He's on the donkey, right? And he's taking videos, right? And he just reposts it without comment. And what are the videos of? I won't stop the crowds from shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. We read in verse 8, Many people spread their clothes on the road. Others spread leafy branches cut from fields. Which incidentally, by the way, is another thing that was done in Old Testament times for kings. King Jehu, in particular, had this kind of royal red carpet treatment And in verse 9, we see those who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, not King Caesar, King Jesus. Like the king of the son of David is here. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, Hosanna literally means save us. 
And the crowd's shouts were the recitations of Psalm 118, which is one of the last of the Hillel Psalms that are typically sung at Passover. They are repeating and echoing what they've already heard in the past. You remember blind Bartimaeus? Son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And the cries just continue as the throngs of the Galilean and the the crowds and the disciples follow him as he enters into Jerusalem. And now they're openly proclaiming it. They're openly proclaiming it. Jesus didn't stop blind Bartimaeus then, and he's not stopping the crowds now. You see, the secrecy of his messianic identity is over. Jesus is not quieting the crowds from declaring his identity. In fact, in Luke's gospel, he says, if the crowds didn't cry out, what would happen? The very rocks would cry out his identity. Talk about that being a cool post. Like, tell me you're the Messiah. Well, the rocks are crying it out right now, okay? You know, like Jesus says, nothing is going to stop anything from my identity being openly declared as I enter into this hotbed of Jerusalem. We have to wrap our minds around the context. The the Romans were not for this. They didn't like this idea. And the Passover was the very time when this kind of angsty, kind of Jewish nationalism might have boiled over and become a problem for them. And now you've got crowds of people saying, Hosanna to our king. Like, who's king here? The Romans would have had problems. And then Jesus is going to go in, and we're not there yet, but he's going to create problems with the religious authorities. He's not making friends with Rome. He's not making friends with the Jewish establishment. He's proclaiming his identity, and it's either he's going to be king, or he's going to get killed. He knows. But he doesn't refuse the praise of the men and the women and the children who are crying out for him to save them as the son of David, the promised Messiah. Far from silencing them, he intentionally allows them to make his identity known. And now briefly, last way that Jesus could have potentially answered this challenge to tell me without telling me, well, he would say, well, I'll just walk into the temple and take a survey of it like I own the place. Because I do. (laughs) Look at verse 11. This, this verse kind of caught me by surprise. I really enjoyed studying this last part. Look at verse 11. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple after looking around at everything. Since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, if you've read Matthew and Luke, I wasn't planning on saying this, so I'm off script, by the way. Uh, um, you know that it's compressed. Like Jesus goes into Jerusalem and then, bam, he cleans out the temple. But this verse takes it chronologically. Matthew and Luke take it topically. They telescope it. So they have different approaches here. But what we learn from this, and as you study this book and you get into the details of the final week of Christ, what's plain is that Jesus overthrowing the temple was not a fit of rage. It wasn't like he just snapped and went bonkers or something like that. Like, Jesus knew. He walked in and he surveyed what was happening. And then he went and had a good night's rest, which makes the turning of the tables more of a demonstration than it does, like, Jesus got angry. And he was angry, of course. In divine wrath, 
He was judging what was happening. But what happens here is we see Jesus is coming in and he takes a look around. The Greek word is periblepsomenos, which the little Greek word pictures of the New Testament book I have says that his look is one that is surveying, serious, sorrowful, and judicial. He's taking a look around and he's inspecting what's happening. Now, can you imagine uh, maybe one of the money changers was out and he's taking his coffee break, you know, religious leader. He's on break at nighttime and Jesus walks in and Jesus just, he's not like a pious worshiper. He's not a, wow, look at this giant temple. This is like a tourist, you know, he just kind of walks in kind of looks around, takes stock. And as I kind of think of it, he maybe looks at the guy over there and goes like this. <laughs> and he wa- it's like ominous, right? Like he walks in as Lord of his domain and he inspects what's going on. Incidentally, that look <laughs> is the same look my wife gives me <laughs> when she comes home from a long day of work. She left the house spotless. She always does. And she comes home, and I have destroyed the house. I've left the spoon in the sink, and this is mess, and the clothes are on the floor. And she's just too tired because she works with middle schoolers all day. And she just kind of looks at me and does this, buddy, you know. I'm too tired for now, but I know in the morning there's going to be some table turning happening, and we're going to get things back in order. I left the house clean. What have you done? You've made it into a den of robbers. No, she doesn't actually say it like that. (laughs) That's Jesus. That's Jesus the next day. I say that in love. My wife really does leave the house spotlessly clean and works very hard, and I will try and do better, lovey, on keeping it clean. (laughs) But this is Jesus' house. He walks in, and he surveys the temple, and every way he does it, every action he takes just screams, I'm the Messiah. And he's going to come back in the morning and set things right in his house, in his father's house. If only... The Jewish leaders had seen it. If only they had believed it. They saw it. If only they had received their king. We understand from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that Jesus, we are told, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus, the Messiah, would come to his dominion, to his house, to his city, what was rightfully his. And sadly, the chief priests and the scribes would stir up the crowds gathered for that festival, and Jesus would be delivered up for crucifixion, just like he said he would. He knew what he was doing. He knew he would get killed. He also knew it was his kingdom And his kingdom has no end. Peter, a few weeks later at Pentecost, is preaching to the crowds, the crowds that were there in Jerusalem. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed 
by the hands of lawless men. Jesus knew. He was being obedient to the will of the Father, fulfilling everything written about him in Scripture. Jesus even says after his resurrection, this is the way Scripture, the Old Testament is written, that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day be risen. He knew, according to God's definite plan, that he would be killed for declaring himself openly to be the Messiah, the promised coming one. And Scripture says that even though God was sovereignly bringing this about and Jesus was fulfilling every word of it, they crucified him. People were responsible for nailing the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to the cross. But then, oh then, what a glorious thing when Peter preaches this truth. The Bible says they were struck to the heart and they cried out, then what must we do? And Jesus, or excuse me, Peter said, repent and believe and be baptized. So my encouragement to you is to do the same. Jesus is the Messiah. Not so subtly, he declared it at his triumphal entry. And then he proved his love for us, that he died for our sins, accomplishing our greatest need at the cross when he gave his blood to pay the penalty you and I owe. Listen, at Passover, they would sacrifice a lamb and spread the, the blood on the doorpost all the way back to Egypt. He had the picture of the blood of the lamb being shed to cover the sins of people. And Jesus was the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world with his blood shed at Calvary. And here's the good news. John doesn't end in John 1 with, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He continues on. He says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So I invite you today, if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you've never received him as the Messiah, as the one promised to come deliver us from our sins, do it today. Receive him and the promises of God will be true in your heart and in your life. You will become a child of God who's not born of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God, would God work a miracle in you and you be born again today? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for sending Jesus to be the payment for our sin. Lord, each one in here, as Brother Wayne prayed today, we are all sinners. We are all deserving of death, as Pastor Allen taught our children Sin came into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Lord, we have all sinned. We are all deserving of death. But by your grace, you sent Jesus to pay the debt that we owe, to die in our place, and to rise again. Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, the, the, the accounts that we have the one gospel, according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, and according to John, that tell of not just your death, but of your resurrection. Lord, we can't wait for Easter. We can't wait to celebrate. But every Sunday we celebrate. We come together on Sunday because it is the day from which you rose early in the morning. 
Every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is a celebration that you did not stay dead, that you defeated death. And you invite us to enter into your life, eternal life. And so, Lord, I pray that all across the room that that people would respond to the good news that Jesus offers us eternal life through his death, burial, and resurrection. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that moves among us. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit would move in in a sinner's heart, Lord, and cause them to repent and to believe this truth, this good news that's been proclaimed today of Jesus and his identity. Lord, I pray that we would respond as believers by living in obedience to our King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that we would continually proclaim this good news to others. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to worship today and to see just another portrait, another picture of Jesus, the Messiah. We pray in his name. Amen.